This week's podcast sponsor is Agility Consulting, a full-service national executive search and talent consulting firm. Agility helps clients find, hire, and support the talent they need to make a difference in the lives of youth. Put them to work for you. Learn more at agilityconsulting.com. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On-Air Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. And I'm Rebecca Koenig, a senior reporter here. Last month in Virginia, a group of educators and state officials led an unusual public history event. It took place on a strip of land that was once called Point Comfort. Becky, you were there, and, and we're hearing sounds from that day in the background. Why, why this place? Yes, so this is the spot where 400 years ago, the first Africans arrived in Virginia, which was the first permanent English colony in what became the United States. So what was it like to be at this event, um, celebrating this anniversary? Can you, can you set the scene for us? Sure, yeah, there was a swirl of emotions. It was sometimes somber, since this is a moment to try to mourn slavery and its legacy of racism. But it was also a celebration of the many cultural contributions African Americans have made to the nation. There was music and drumming and a parade of flags from African nations near the water next to Old Point Comfort. Most of all, I felt a sense that this was a chance for education to help a broader audience understand the full history of the African-American experience and therefore the American experience. For this week's podcast, we're looking at the role that African-American scholars and teachers have played in preserving the full history of slavery and its aftermath. This anniversary event we're talking about today, it epitomizes an effort to explain the role that people of color, which are the very groups that have so often been denied rights and liberties, were the ones who fought hardest for the American ideals and for equality. That's a big change to the story that this country so often tells itself. And that has a lot to do with uh, reimagining and reframing the American narrative that has erased people of color, uh, and especially during what is really America's founding. That was Cassandra Newby-Alexander, a history professor and dean of the College of Liberal Arts at Norfolk State University. For her, this day was one piece of her long struggle to get academics and the public to take seriously and accurately the study of Black history and culture. So at this event, I was able to sit down with this scholar and with her colleague, Gloria J. Brown Marshall, who is a professor of constitutional law at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And we talked about one group leading the charge to preserve and educate us all on this topic, Uh, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. And the three of us met in the library at Hampton University, a historically black college, just a few miles from where the first Africans landed four centuries ago. Hampton is where the association chose to host its commemoration symposium for this big anniversary, titled 400 Years of Perseverance. And 400 Years of Perseverance is a phrase I coined um, a couple of years ago because I was tired of this sense of the enslavement and oppression of African Americans being the complete story when it is not. We would not be in this room, I would not be able to speak with you today if there wasn't perseverance, courage, 
um, creativity, intellectual um, development, all of these things that people of African descent have been and continue to be in this country. And the power of the spirit of African Americans is being celebrated today because that spirit itself pushed through when everything, the law in my area's legal history, the law, the culture, um, the society itself all said that Africans were nothing beneath contempt, could be murdered, their babies sold, all of this. And yet these Africans kept alive a spirit of humanity that defied everything. That is what this 400 year um, anniversary is to me. And that is what 400 years of perseverance is all about. One of the best known researchers to make this case was a man named Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who members of the association cite as a pioneer in the field of African-American history. Dr. Carter G. Woodson graduated from Harvard, but he was not a person born to money at all. He was very poor, but he had an intellect of genius and he decided in a time in which, remember, this is um, about 50 years out of slavery or so, and he's seeing this country look at African Americans as having no history and no contribution. And he knew it wasn't true. I knew it wasn't true without even knowing that Dr. Woodson existed. But the rest of the world didn't know it, and our community didn't know it as well as it should. And so Dr. Woodson decided that he would make as a structure, institution, the historical scholarly discovery and research of African-American history and publishing it. So he started the journal to publish it because it was thought in these white journals of scholarly research that there was nothing that African-Americans had done that was worth publishing. And so we had to develop our own journals and we had to develop our own conferences in which we exchanged information with one another. And so this is how Asala began and this is what we continue to do. Woodson's goal was getting scholars to recognize African-American history. And he also wanted to get broader recognition of this scholarly work. He began with um, Negro History Week that is now African-American History Month. So you can see how pivotal his existence was in the work that he did back then to what we're doing today when we are commemorating 400 years of African-American history. He got the world to see that this was a history worthy of research. And there are so many PhDs, masters, so many people, so many books written about our history and so many books yet to write. And so, so it sounds like there wasn't much respect given, though, to, to black writers and scholars and and the work they were doing to preserve black history. In fact, there are white scholars today writing about African-Americans, that, and they never look in any of the black newspapers. So their viewpoint is skewed because it's only from the perspective of how whites have viewed blacks, as opposed to how blacks view themselves in their own communities and what's actually happening in that community. Because if your lens is only focused on your perception of black people, then you're going to ignore um, all the different threats of that community. And so black scholars have been focusing on these things from the beginning. With white institutions and journals and scholars ignoring their work, black academics relied on their own institutions, especially black schools and colleges like Hampton, which traces its roots to efforts to educate enslaved people who escaped during the Civil War. Uh, and Hampton later educated important figures like Booker T. Washington. 
these HBCUs didn't just preserve scholarship around Black life. They taught it to Black students. And in passing along that knowledge, the scholars told me, those colleges passed on cultural pride. Yeah, so Becky, it sounds like Black history museums have have served a role in this as well. That's right, uh, according to Brown Marshall. National African American Museum, and prior to that, the Charles Wright Museum in Detroit, um, were places where um, African Americans and others could go to see themselves in fine institutions. As was pointed out prior to that, it was an HBCU. And maybe some institutes, maybe smaller ones, very small, that were created by personal funding um, in different cities across the country. But as we began to build institutions, this whole sense that we are a people worthy of study, and that's what Carter G. Woodson, when you know, who was also a graduate of Harvard, you know, when he was thinking. Um, and traveling around the world, that a people without a history cannot be respected. Those themes were reflected throughout the weekend in renditions of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is also known as the Black National Anthem. It's not often that academic symposia feature singing, but this one did. After the break, a look at intellectual activism and how teachers have been the unsung heroes of Black history. Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Agility, a company that helps education organizations find, hire, and keep high-quality talent. I recently talked with Agility's co-founder, Christina Greenberg, who had plenty of advice about how to be smart about not just hiring, but about growing an organization's leadership and creating a succession plan. One of her pro tips, think about diversity early. You know, I tell a lot of my clients, I'm happy to do a search for you for a CEO or an ED or a senior leader. I would really love it if next time you're doing this search, you don't have to hire me, right? And you've done the work internally to groom and build people up to those senior roles. Um, and, when, and particularly when we're thinking about diversity and inclusion, you may need to hire a woman or a person of color at a lower level at first because they haven't been given as many opportunities to be in the C-suite. But if you groom and develop them, how successful can they be? As I mentioned, I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of business and tech ones. And when I hear Kara Swisher or Alex Bloomberg talk to tech people, a lot of the women have been grown up through the ranks, right? You know, the CEO of Pepsi or the CEO of these other organizations came through the organization up to that senior level. And I think that's great. And I think we need to do more of that. And so recognizing talent internally and the companies that are doing this, that are, again, hiring people for future needs as well, providing training and development, having regular conversations with people about their aspirations and dreams, both so you can keep them before they decide to go somewhere else and so that you can help them reach those aspirations and dreams. To find out more about Agility, visit agilityconsulting.com. That's E-D-G-I-L-I-T-Y consulting.com. Now back to the episode. Black institutions not only supported research, but teaching. On Hampton's campus, near the library where I met with Newby Alexander and Brown Marshall, is a huge tree that marks the spot where the university got its start. It's also known as the Emancipation Oak, and it's where enslaved Black people who escaped during the Civil War gathered to learn from Black teacher Mary Peek. And it's where they heard the Emancipation Proclamation read. Were it not for Hampton University, that tree that's a little over 400 years ago, I mean years old, called Emancipation Oak, wouldn't even exist today because when they constructed the interstate system, 
in Virginia. They killed every black community they could kill. They ran that highway straight through communities, and they were going to tear that tree down. And Hampton University lobbied and pushed and fought to preserve that tree because they understood the importance of that tree and its connection, even with Hampton Institute and Hampton University. And and the legacies of of black men and women like Mary Peak, who was from Norfolk, who became a, a, a teacher secretly and then became the first uh, teacher uh, paid uh, by the American Missionary Association to to out to reach out to the contrabands and and taught them even on her deathbed she was still teaching them she died very early of tuberculosis at the age of thirty nine but she was continuing to teach them until she couldn't speak anymore and and those students that she taught became the teachers of the future and they also started a school with the assistance of the military commander at that time Benjamin Butler they created the Butler School, and the Butler School became the model for Hampton Institute. The Association Symposium featured a talk from Derek Aldridge, an education professor at the University of Virginia, about the oral history project he leads called Teachers in the Movement, that is, the Civil Rights Movement. He thinks Black teachers deserve more credit for the work they've done to educate students under strange circumstances. For example, Southern states often paid them to take teacher training elsewhere rather than allow them to integrate Southern universities. Black teachers' classrooms usually lacked sufficient resources with secondhand textbooks, and Aldrich told the story of one teacher who had only a few microscopes um, for hundreds of science students to share. Black teachers risked their lives to teach their enslaved brethren to read. Black teachers established schools in their homes and churches, and these schools were often called Sabbath-day schools, the ones that were established in churches after emancipation during Reconstruction. And black teachers also challenged white supremacy in their classrooms throughout the 20th century. And these are stories that we don't know about. These events prompted me to think about the countless numbers of teachers during the black freedom struggles whose name we do not know, and whose stories will never be heard. Aldrich calls this work that Black teachers did in passing on stories of liberation and democracy intellectual activism. Uh, teachers in all Black schools with, re- with few resources provide students with a culturally relevant education, intellectual nourishment, and a sense of racial pride. Such intangibles were essential for Black students to succeed in the context of Jim Crow. And that intellectual activism continues today. Black teachers and professors are fighting to make sure that African-Americans' struggles and contributions, especially to their own quests for freedom, are taught in the classroom and in museums. Based on my conversation with Brown Marshall and Nubia Alexander, it sounds like they've got their work cut out for them. Brown Marshall told me that the pivotal role of African-Americans played is omitted constantly, from school curriculums and public history. Uh, I, I read a recent story from the Washington Post examining how, in the 20th century, Confederate sympathizers did everything they could to ensure textbooks and reference books intentionally left out information about slavery. 
Additionally, there was a report last year from the Southern Poverty Law Center that showed many modern American students lack basic knowledge about slavery and race. And America has done everything it could to destroy that, to suppress that knowledge, because you can control people with knowledge suppression. But once they have that knowledge and they understand the sacrifices of their ancestors, it, and that's really what history is all about, is, is it, in part it, it helps to make people feel uh, as if they have a, a legacy and a mission. And, and by depriving, nationally depriving, or attempting to deprive black people of that knowledge, this is what we've seen done with the standards of learning. This, this, is, this has a specific political design. It sounds like this 400th anniversary of slavery has been an opportunity to not only teach black history, but really to, to do better at building systems that make sure the current and future students get a stronger foundation in this past. Exactly. American Evolution, which is the group that organized the state's official anniversary events, worked with teachers to develop curriculum lessons for elementary and secondary students, plus an app called Virginia History Trails that students and the public can use to learn more about important places and figures, um, including those related to Black history in the state. Uh, The day after the association's symposium at the state commemoration near Old Point Comfort, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam got big applause for his announcement that he had signed an executive directive establishing a commission on African-American history education in Virginia. We know that racism and discrimination aren't locked in the past. They weren't solved with the Civil Rights Act. They didn't disappear. They merely evolved. Perhaps, Brown Marshall told me, Efforts to expand the study and teaching of Black history will help more Americans understand and appreciate modern Black culture and African Americans' continued fight for rights and equity. I'm a proud African American, made even prouder by learning from my ancestors, their struggle, their interaction with others, their ability to create businesses, colleges, families, Um, to navigate this world carrying the burden of oppression. I would like people who study African-American history, who get their PhDs and masters in it, to not just look at the people they're studying as objects of study, but as human beings. And unfortunately, despite 400 years of interaction I think America still has an an issue seeing African-Americans as fully developed human beings with a free will, a soul, and a spirit, and an intellect. So as they read, I hope that they, people who study African-American history, the scholars in it of all stripes, will see beyond the specimen in the book and understand that the people all around them are those ancestors of those people being studied within their books and understand the the connection between the African-Americans who are deserving a full citizenship all around them and the African-Americans in their scholarship fighting for full citizenship. 
This has been the EdSurge Podcast. For links to resources and more information mentioned in this episode, check out our show page. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. Please take a minute to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to make sure to catch future episodes. And if you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you would take a minute to give us a rating or review. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.